this is the Classical Ideas Podcast. Welcome to the Classical Ideas Podcast. This is Greg Soden. Society today pushes us into ever greater freneticism at every turn. Imagine a new phone has been released. The messaging from the world is, you need this phone. Your clothing is out of season? Get new ones. There is a new season of such and such show on a streaming service? Binge it for 16 hours straight. Someone flips you off in traffic? Be mad at that person all day long and make sure everyone else knows how miserable you are and how awful everyone else is. Don't have time to cook? Get your food and pre-portioned ingredients shipped conveniently to your house in an insulated cooler. Your child begs you to play with them? Just say, just a second, honey, and continue to scroll on your phone, plugged into the world in an illusory manner. Maybe none of this troubles you. Maybe it does. How has our society arrived at this point? Is there any way to regain a semblance of control over our lives? I have no idea. I think about this a lot, though. Zen is not easy to teach. Zen is not easy to discuss. Zen is a topic where the more I read, the more I'm certain I'm missing something. But maybe that's the point. Zen began in China as Chan Buddhism, spread across Asia, and became Zen in Japan. While Zen grew out of the Mahayana school of Buddhism and was influenced by Taoism, specifically the concept of Wu Wei, translated from Chinese as non-doing, Zen is the practice of just sitting. Zen has a very unique set of beliefs with regards to written and spoken instructions. There's also no god. A practitioner doesn't bow to anyone, but instead bows for the sake of bowing. Practitioners just sit in a practice called Zazen, translated from Japanese as seated meditation. Sometimes practitioners sit for 30 minutes and sometimes they sit for longer. Sometimes they sit for so long in a practice called session, where monks and nuns sometimes pull off feats of a dozen hours of meditation in a single day, sometimes more. Zen was founded by a person named Bodhidharma, who realized that all the colors, the cosmology, and the rituals of prior forms of Buddhism or Hinduism were merely distractions and that they weren't needed. Imagine colorful robes being too distracting. How would Bodhidharma feel about us today? Zen is indeed an ancient practice in a world moving at, to quote Mel Brooks, ludicrous speed. Zen de-emphasizes the importance of sutras and instead says practitioners should just interact with their Buddha nature through intensive sitting. Zen is radical because you just sit. You do nothing. You sit Zazen. So today I'm talking with Sato Ray Ronsi. Sato Ray Ronsi is a Rinzai Zen monk and the director of the Hokoku on Zendo Meditation Center in Columbia, Missouri. He is the author of the poetry collection, The Skeleton of the Crow, winner of the 2009 Penn Center USA Award for Poetry, and This Rented Body, published in 2006. He contributed to the Zen poetry collection America Zen, A Gathering of Poets, published in 2004. His work has also appeared in Tricycle, Narrative, and Rattle. Sato Ronsi is an associate professor at the University of Missouri, 
where he teaches critical theory and literature. Without further ado, I bring you Sato Ray Ronsi of Hokoku on Zendo. Classical Ideas Podcast. This is Greg Soden. I am here today with Sato Ronsi. Sato, thank you for coming on the podcast. You're welcome. So um, maybe you could just go off and start by introducing yourself a little bit. Well, my name is Sato Ray Ronsi. I'm an ordained Rinzai Zen monk and uh, a professor at MU um, and a uh, poet. My last collection of poems was the Skeleton of the Crow, New and Selected Poems from uh, 1978 to 2008. Fantastic. Uh, and those books are widely available um, for anybody who's curious to find them. Uh, what tradition of Zen um, do you practice? I'm a, a monk of the Rinzai Zen tradition. So, in your own words, what is Rinzai Zen? Well, it's just a form of Zen that uh, <clears throat> arose... Um, in Japan, there's there were originally five schools of Zen, and they got whittled down to two, Rinzai and Soto Zen. And depending on who you ask, the Rinzai tradition has often been referred to as the warrior tradition, and or samurai tradition, um, and Soto as the sort of farmer or cultivation tradition. But nowadays, I don't think those distinctions apply that much, uh, certainly not in terms of American Zen, not really. So what is like the basic distinction between Soto and Rinzai? Well, there are a couple of um, outward formal things that are different. For example, in a Soto Zendo, you sit normally facing the wall, and in Rinzai, you sit facing the center of the room. Um, the other sort of distinction is with the use of koans. Koans are the questions, uh, and I'd say questions as opposed to riddles, though a lot of people think of them as riddles, but the questions that are presented to you by a Zen master that you are anticipated to respond to um, without thinking. In a Rinzai tradition, when you go in for Sanzen, which is an interview with the Zen master, you are expected to be completely present and completely empty and aware and have the proper state of mind to correctly manifest the response to the koan. In the Soto tradition, and I don't know this for a fact because I've not done Dakusan in, in the Soto tradition, but my sense is that they tend to be more um, discussion-oriented and they use koans more for... Um, giving lectures about the koans as opposed to um, the Zen tradition. I have to be honest. So whenever I read things about Zen from an outsider's point of view, the koans, they scare me sort of as a, as a person in the world. Like I, I get nervous even thinking about the idea of thinking about a koan. Well, that's the whole point. You're not supposed to think about the koan. Uh, and <clears throat> koan... You know, when my, like my teacher, for example, he never used the more traditional koans 
from the Mumin Khan or the Blue Cliff Records or any of those things. He um, used, he created his own koans for his American students. I think in part because of the what you just said about and the traditional sense of koans, people get freaked out and they think that they have to find the answer to the koan. And that's, there's, there's no such thing as the answer to a koan. Uh, <clears throat> A koan ultimately is to bring you to an intellectual impasse where there is no room any left or any more for logic and reason, where you have to break through the limitations of one's thinking mind. And so, you know, it's uh, it can be daunting, um, but you get if you have a good teacher and they're using koans well, then it's not a problem. They're, they're very, very helpful. It's a really good practice. So what is the purpose of Zen in your life? Actually, let me rephrase. How long, first of all, have you been practicing Zen? Um, <laughs> almost 40 years. So what is the purpose of Zen oh, in your God. life? As, you know, there's a, there's a koan that says, what was Bodhidharma's purpose in coming to the West? And uh, the one of the standard replies is, if he had a purpose, he, ha he wouldn't have been able to save anybody. Zen has to not have a purpose. It just really has to be. It has to be a practice. And it's really quite, quite simple. If you really, from a historical perspective, if you think about how did Zen come about in the first place, then you have to, you have to go back, way, way, way back, and realize that after Buddhism, after Shakyamuni had his enlightenment and Buddhism was established, about 500 years passed. And on the Silk Road, connecting the east to the west, all kinds of travelers made their connections from one place to the next place, and they shared stories, they shared traditions, they shared... Their, so effectively, there is no one pure religion. No, not whether it's you start with Zoroastrianism and you go in through the Abrahamic traditions of um, Judaism and Christianity and Islam, there, there's overlap in all of it. Now, people had a very difficult time with Buddhism because of the word nirvana, which loosely translates to extinction. Nobody wants to be extinguished. People want rewards for the life they live, so they want heaven. And so the whole notion of the Bodhisattva path, as I understand it, was pretty much an invention that, that came about as a way of understanding other aspects of Buddhism that would be more inspiring to people who didn't understand the idea of extinction, which is, which is an odd thing. So at one point in history, Buddhist temples were like the holiday inns of the Silk Road. They were all over, and there was even a Greek emperor who was a Buddhist. I believe it was Menander, I'm not sure. But the point being that <clears throat> Buddhism had traveled all over the place, and it had picked up all kinds of things from other traditions. So in the 500 years that passed since Shakyamuni, it was pretty much, it had evolved into all different stages of, of uh, Buddhism, different types of Buddhism. So what Bodhidharma did when he came from India and brought Buddhism to China was he basically threw out everything that had accumulated 
from all these other various traditions and all these other interpretations. Now at the time, and this I think is interesting, at the time there had already existed a number of Buddhist temples in China. And the Chinese were able to embrace it pretty readily because they saw it as an Indian form of Taoism. And um, so they basically thought that this was a kind of Taoism from India that put a lot of emphasis on, on meditation. So when Bodhidharma ended up in China, the emperor summoned him to his court. And the first thing the emperor asked him was, I've provided for all these monks and nuns. I've built all these temples. And um, what merit have I attained from doing this? And Bodhidharma said, none whatsoever. And, you know, the emperor was not wrong in his asking the question because at that time people expected those things, a kind of quid pro quo thing about if I build these temples, I get rewards. Mm -hmm. I mean, a lot of religious traditions have that. It's like putting money in the heaven bank or something like that. So needless to say, the emperor was kind of miffed when uh, Bodhidharma said, well, no, you don't get any merit. And so he says, okay, well, what is this teaching that you bring here? And it's very important what Bodhidharma said, and I think that he said basically vast emptiness and nothing holy. Now, it's very easy to say those four words, vast emptiness, nothing holy, but it's very difficult to comprehend those four words, particularly the nothing holy part, especially for Westerners. And I'll, I'll explain more about that in a second. But um, to continue the story, when the emperor said, well, if everything's empty and nothing is holy, then who are you? And Bodhidharma replied, don't know. And he wasn't being flippant, obviously, and it's, you know, it's very important to try to understand what this don't know is all about. In fact, there was a Korean Zen master, Sung San Sun Sanim, who passed away not long ago, really, who, uh, whose primary teaching was only go straight ahead, don't know. You know, he used to sometimes give instructions with a student that when you inhale, in your meditation, you ask yourself, who am I? When you exhale, answer, don't know, and as a kind of practice. But <clears throat> so knowing that uh, the emperor couldn't really understand what, what uh, Bodhidharma was talking about, that's when he went up into the mountains of Shaolin and found a cave and sat facing a wall, as the story goes, for, for nine years. Until finally a monk named Hui Ke came and had an interview with him. But that's a whole other story. But let me just back up a second to this vast emptiness, nothing holy. One of the, it seems to me, the dangers of introducing Buddhism into the West is that we Westerners, we love holy things. We like spiritual things. And <clears throat> a lot of people even say, well, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. So this kind of notion of spiritual this and spiritual that is a kind of spiritual materialism, really, as, as Trungpa Rinpoche used to talk about. In fact, he has a, a quite a good book called uh, Cutting Through Spiritual Materialism. And, you know, we tend to, in the West, we tend to create spiritual resumes. And it's possible for people, and I've certainly seen this in my experience going to monasteries, where... Uh, even among some ordained people, where they uh, exchange one ego for another ego, and where they they drop the ego of the secular world, and now they have the ego of the uh, of a sort of sacred world or the imagination of a sacred world, and that's not particularly <laughs> that's not a particularly enlightened uh, position to take. And I, and I have seen that I've seen 
that among monks. And I think one of the other dangerous things is that we tend to fetishize certain practices. So, for example, going into a Japanese monastery or in a Japanese-American monastery, that would be, for example, um, where a Japanese teacher has begun the institution here. Sometimes people become more seduced by the Japanese cultural aspect of the practice and take that to be Zen. And that can be also problematic. So it's very, you know, it's, you have to make it a point to cut through the clutter and find out what is the real practice here and how much of this is Japanese culture, how much of this is Vietnamese culture or Korean culture or whatever, because every culture adapts Zen to its own culture. And we're doing that in the United States too. Not with great success as far as I can tell so far, but we'll see. Mm -hmm. So I have my own perceptions on this question, um, but what sorts of like personal individual problems like in the individual do you think that Zen addresses? All of them. All of the problems. I mean, Zen addresses the, our very basic nature. Like, who are we? Why do we think what we think? And Buddhism, you know, teaches your true self has no self. So it, obviously it begs the question, who am I? And that's where the koans come in. When you get to that place of where logic and reason are shattered and where you stand pretty much naked in the universe with this huge question, what is this? In fact, you know, that's one of the koans that in the Korean practice of Sun Zen or Sun Buddhism, um, oftentimes their, their use of koans is slightly different, or at least it has been traditionally from the Japanese, where you will get one koan, and that's your koan for your whole life. And so oftentimes one of them is, what is this? Or what is it? Uh, another one is, who hears? Now, you may have noticed that there's wind chimes in the trees out front and in the back. So that is the implicit koan of Hokokoan is who is hearing, who hears sound, who is it who hears? And where do you go when you hear the sound of the wind chimes? Ching! Where do you go? <laughs> That's pretty beautiful and interesting. I mean, I'm, what's so fascinating about this conversation is I'm just hearing all these things that whenever I listen back to this in the future, it will cause me to think new things and will cause me to ponder new stuff. So I'm really interested to dive into these more in the future. So uh, who are some of your personal role models in Zen? Like if there were like authors you could recommend or teachers that you would recommend listeners check out? Well, you know, I would say initially the... Uh, I would go to the old teachers, the classical teachers. I would start with, with Bodhidharma. I would start with Bodhidharma, and I would go probably back to, uh, you know, Seng San, you know, Verses on the Faith Mind, which if you have that one text, Verses on the Faith Mind, or the Shin, uh, what's it called, Shin Shin Ming, something like that. Um, I can't remember, but that's maybe five, six pages, but if that was the only text you had on Zen, that would be all you need for the rest of your life. And um, that's it. That, that's the, the one key text. Now, <clears throat> I am fond of... Uh, people find their own 
teachers based on their own needs. So certain people gravitate towards a Zen master like Banke, who was um, one who criticized those teachers who who felt like manifesting a great doubt was essential. And then he, so he criticized them. But then you got somebody at the same period, basically named Hakuin, who was just the opposite. But yet they were both Rinzai Zen monks. So the interesting thing about this, and you find this from the teachings, is that from the various styles of teaching, you realize there is no one transcendent teaching style that uh, the styles are different so in other words zen doesn't destroy or relinquish a teacher's personality they still have a personality they still live in the world they still have their idiosyncrasies um and when you you know what i find interesting especially at my age now as i read the more sort of contemporary mid to late 20th century uh, Zen teachers, whether, whether they be Japanese or Korean or whoever, um, I just find what I'm looking for or looking at is the different styles of teaching, not so much what they say, but how they address the people that they're speaking to. And that's a very important aspect of this, you know, and that's why in many cases you'll find, like if you look back, Zen master, I believe it was Yunman, would say to somebody, you know, Buddha is mind, and that would be his teaching. And then the very same teacher would turn around and say, no mind, no Buddha, to a different student, because you sort of like dole out the medicine that is needed by the individual. So not everybody's distractions or illness, if you want to use that term, not everyone's the same. So you need different teachings. So in this modern world, uh, are there any people alive like now or relatively recently that you would say definitely check out? Because, um, you know, I, if somebody tries to look at the, the really old stuff and then they can try to look for a connection to the modern day, would you see any modern people that you would suggest as well? You know, I haven't, <laughs> I haven't been on the circuit in a long time, uh, and I don't really know a lot of the, uh, the more contemporary um, Especially, I don't really know any of the American Zen masters. I can't, I don't know of any of them. I mean, I know they exist, but I don't know them. Sure. So, what do you love about Zen? What keeps you coming back to the practice? Well, it's, so now, by, at this point, it's kind of like brushing my teeth. I mean, it's, it's just a part of my life, and, you know, I, I, I've been doing it for such a long time, I don't really think about it that much. So what does, uh, so we already talked about the personal question. Um, so what do you see as some of the biggest problems facing humanity today? Ego. ego, ego, absolutely ego. And we live in a culture that is predicated on consumerism and consumerism appeals largely, almost exclusively to the ego. And this is, this is very problematic. In fact, you know, many of the problems that we have now uh, are due in large part to what I really firmly believe is the shift in epistemology that we've experienced in the last 50 years, having gone from a predominantly print-based culture to a television-based culture and now to a television-slash-digital culture and a digital 2.0 culture. Now, this has all happened within like 35, 40 years, and uh, the technology has outstripped our maturity. 
in many ways. And so what we have now, now I don't know if you've seen some of the books that are on this table here, like the narcissism epidemic and uh, Jean Twenge, the psychologist, she has another book called um, The Me Generation and uh, the and another one actually, she's a very prolific woman, the psychologist, she just published another book called iGen. And she's, she's a psychologist who specializes in generations, uh, studies of um, transformations from one generation to the next. And her studies more or less conclude that the more screen time you spend, the more miserable you are as a person. Now, I've been a professor during this entire you know, period for almost 40 years I've been teaching. And uh, I have watched from the front lines of the classroom, so to speak, this shift in epistemology affect my students. My students, there's no question about them being far more distracted, far suffering from more things like anxiety and depression and uh, attention deficit disorder. And, and a lot of them, sadly enough, they are suffering from drug abuse as well. And I've had nine students uh, in the last several years uh, die from um, overdose. Now, as we all know, the opioid epidemic in the country is profound. And you have to ask, well, why? What is it that people are trying to escape from when they do opioids? You know, certainly some of them, they become addicted, certainly not with any intention and not with any particular desire to escape, not, not initially, but, you know, they end up doing that. And you have to realize, too, that in so many ways, our culture sets people up for dramatic failure by promising them the world and giving them virtually nothing, you know, other than uh, easy credit so that they can buy things they don't need with money they don't have that keeps them forever on this treadmill of consumption and debt accumulation. And how can you be... How can you be happy and content in a world that's constantly telling you that what you have isn't enough and who you are isn't enough and the only remedy to that is to go out and shopping and to buy some more? And as you, I'm sure, know, the, the, uh, with the young students these days, there is that intense um, amount of insecurity that people have, a lot of insecurity, uh, a lot of self-consciousness. and. A lot of loneliness, uh, despite the fact that there is social media. Social media is almost an oxymoron because the more it's social media. So it's not social, it's a medium. And that actually removes people from people. And a lot of people prefer social media to actually sitting in a room with people. And when you do see people sitting in a room together, what are they doing? They're all on their smartphones. You know, so it's it's uh, very, very difficult times for these young people. Uh, and our culture, our consumer culture, isn't making things easier for them. In fact, it's making things, things much worse. And, uh, you know, when you consider the fact that so many students are going to graduate college with upwards of $30,000 in student loans, not to mention probably $10,000, $15,000 in credit card loans, and also having expensive tastes. You know, you look at the, some of the housing on campus. My God, these kids, after they graduate, they'll be lucky if they can live that well. You know, I mean, so it's, it, it, these are rough times, very, very difficult times. So how can a practice like 
Zazen um, help a person through this misery that we've created for ourselves? Well, number one, you know, it gives you a sort of panoramic view of, of what is going on. I mean, through the practice. And, and let me hasten to add that I've been doing the MU Buddhist Association for 15 years. And, you know, a lot of students certainly are seeking some way to be still or be at peace. And, uh, but also they find it very, very difficult. Sitting meditation is not an easy practice. And um, particularly, and I would have to say, I would say particularly Zen meditation because it does require a very, uh, a very strong posture. And, you know, I've seen other groups like so-called meditation groups and you can sit however you want to sit. You can move whenever you want to move. You, it, it becomes more of a self-expression rather than self-negation. And that's, that's a problem. I mean, there, there are those people whose meditation is they do it to add spiritual credentials to their daily life. And that, you know, that's adding on to the spiritual ego, if you want to call it that. And that's not a good way of practice. So when you, when you practice this letting go, you break the spell that allows you to step back and see. And it's from this point of view that you begin to look at the world with a greater sense of equanimity. So you recognize that suffering is real. And you recognize that the escape from suffering is also real. But it is also a practice. And you have to be able to freely suffer and freely put down suffering. And this, this becomes a problem for a lot of people as well. A lot of people are afraid to deal with difficult situations and try to escape them. That You can't really escape them. Other people, when they get confronted with difficult situations, they deal with them, but then they can't let them go. And so they become depressed for a long time afterwards or whatever. And they, so either way, you're clinging. And this, this it's very important. And this is what Zazen enables one to do, is to break through the clutter and open the fist of thought and let that thought go and just be breathe and be and that's that's a good place to start and i think that will also help somebody learn about what it actually feels like to be human yeah yeah so what are some of your goals for life in zen i don't have any goals <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't. I don't. I don't even know what that means. Like goals for Zen. I don't know what that. You know. No, I don't. I mean, I just keep my house clean, wash my dishes. That's that's my goal. So I know that you spent uh, the way that we met was um, somebody that I talked to in one of the earliest episodes of my podcast, George Frizzell. Mm -hmm. And I know that you and George uh, collaborated for a long time. Yeah to um, bring an idea of Zen to the young people of our city. So why did you spend years visiting students in public schools to talk about Zen? Well, it wasn't just Zen that George was talking about, obviously, as you well know. And I teach a similar class too. You know, I teach a, a class called the Wisdom Literature of the Silk Road, and uh, that covers all these various traditions too. It's basically a college-level class of what you're teaching in, in high school. I think students need to be exposed to these things, and I think that um, 
in a very, very practical political sense, they need to understand how all these different religions, if you get stuck on the language, then there are problems. That's the expression that I believe originates in Chinese, but you know, don't mistake the finger for the moon. And all of these separate teachings are fingers. So if you get stuck on the finger, you never see what they're pointing to. And so in the realm of language, there is always a yeah, but. This is why you have all these different variations of Christianity, for example. You know, all these interpretations of Christianity. This is why when you, when you have a religion that's dependent upon language, and that's Judaism and Islam as well, you know, when you're dependent on language, there's always somebody who's going to interpret it. And every interpretation is going to be slightly different. And some people can take language and totally abuse it, especially spiritual language or religious language. They can use it more as a weapon um, to oppress people as opposed to a means to liberate people. And that becomes problematic. So if students can try to understand the similarities in these different philosophies or religions or ideas, then maybe they can be they can see inside the practice or inside the belief and start to recognize that we have a common humanity all of us that when you strip away the different designations of this religion or that religion and you strip away the dogma what do we all want we all want the same thing we want to be whole ultimately we want to be whole, which means certain traditions to manifest the Tao, to manifest the Buddha nature, to manifest the Holy Spirit. All of those are different titles, different names, but they essentially point to the same thing. Now, a lot of people would completely disagree with what I just said. That's because they love their religion and they love their language. They're stuck on their language. That's why I got into Zen practice, because Zen is not dependent on language. In fact, I studied with a Zen master for until he passed away a few years ago, and he barely spoke English. And I, when I first started practicing with him, I was very attached to language, and I, I was very attached to my intellect. I mean, I was only 23 years old, and I was a college graduate with a degree in creative writing and English, and I was just like, I was all about language. And my teacher... The very first, one of the very first times I met him, he asked me, what, are, what do you do? And I stupidly said, I'm a poet. And he laughed and he said, you never become poet. And I was like, well, <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, that was my first introduction. And then uh, 30 something years later or whenever, when, when, when my new and selected poems came out, he, I don't think he ever read it because I don't think he reads English, but at any rate, he said to me, oh, your poetry, I dislike it. I dislike it. So I remember saying, well, get in line, you know. <laughs> so, yeah. Anyway. <clears throat> Last question. Do you consider Zen religion? No, and strictly speaking, it's not. The Buddha is not a god. We don't pray to the Buddha. We don't worship the Buddha. Uh, so it, from a strict theistic per, uh, perspective then no uh, people have tried to make it into a religion people call it a religion one of the world's great religions but strictly speaking 
It's not really. And, uh, you know, again, getting back to vast emptiness, nothing holy. That holy part, you know, that's a part of this teaching that people seem to hear and it goes in one ear and out the other because there's a lot of holy Buddhists around. <laughs> I'm not one of them, however. <laughs> Sato, yeah. thank you for coming on the Classical Ideas podcast. You're welcome. This has been a real pleasure. Okay, thank you.